Okay, so what this squiggly little thing is in the corner of this, if you have a QR reader on your smartphone, you can scan that, and it'll actually bring you up a map of how to get there. If not, as Jim said, there are uh, maps in the back. We encourage all of you, come to baptisms. Come. It's, it's, a, it's supposed to be a full church family affair, so you should all come and show up. It'll be good. Uh, also, next week is Easter. Everybody tends to always want to go to church on Easter, which is a good thing. All right, it's not, I'm not saying it's not, but uh, if if you want to see, you may actually want to come to the early. We're, our 815 is going to be at 8 a.m. So if you're inviting friends and you want to go to the early one, 8 a.m. So because usually we do at the 815 services, we cut out a song and and I do announcements, which is never fun. Uh, and so we're going to do first service is going to get the entire normal service. Uh, next week. So if you want, if you're going to come to Easter, you want to come to the early service, 8 a.m., not 8.15. Uh, if you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you get an app called Uversion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get all the sermon notes and stuff as well. Now, going along with baptisms, a couple things with this. When you, when you get there, park really anywhere you want. Uh, if, if there's a spot, take it, because I'll just park somewhere in the back, and then I don't need to get out. So you can, whatever you want. There's lots of parking. and Park up and down the street. Uh, when you get there, don't, don't walk through the front door, all right? Walk over on the west side. There's a gate in the side. Walk through that and go into the backyard. Best way to get in there. And when you get there, a couple things are going to happen. The first one is that my dog is going to run up to you and want you to play with her. Okay? I got two rules for my dog today. Number one, don't play with her, all right? She, she hurt her leg, and... Oh, yeah. Like, really? Already? Just that? All right. So she hurt her leg, and she, she's been limping. Like, she'll get up, and she'll be like, I don't want to put her arm on the ground. But if you pick up a ball or a frisbee, she's like, <gasps> she doesn't even think about it anymore. And she'll run, and she tries to tackle the thing, and then she limps around. So if she, she brings you her frisbee, pat her on the head, be all a nice dog. She'll probably even lay it on your lap at some point and just set up. Don't play with the dog. Second thing is, the dog's going to be there, and you're going, to be, you're going to feel really bad because you're not allowed to play with the dog, so you're only going to give her some of your food. Don't give her some of your food. Because you get to go home, I get to smell it all night long. All right? Don't feed her human food. No human. Are we good? All right. And no one's going to listen back. Ha ha, this will be so funny. It's not funny. It's not. And God will... And God, and yeah, April Fool's no kidding. Don't do it. If our God was a God of retribution, I'd pray it down on your head. But, all right. Why don't you stay on there reading the God's Word? We'll get going here. It says, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to be those who are content in you and the calling you have placed in our lives so that we can be those who learn how to forgive the way that you call us to, to live the lives that you call us to, to bring you great glory and honor by resting ourselves completely in you. Amen. Have a seat. So this is the book of Genesis. If you're new, we're in week 12 and we're only hitting the end of chapter 4. Don't fret. Uh, we will pick up here significantly after today. April Fool's. No, really, we do pick up a little bit, not much, but we do pick up 
a little bit. Uh, so far, what you've seen a lot in Genesis is that God creates man in a certain way to find his true contentment and fulfillment in him. That our souls actually have perfect peace and shalom when we find our contentment in him. And so God creates all things good and peaceful and right. He places man into that creation says, don't dishonor your relationship with me. And what does man do? Almost from the get-go, he dishonors his relationship with God. This brings death and it brings separation in the relationship from God and each other. And then man is no longer content to live as God calls him to live. Now, because of this death and separation, God is a God of hope and goodness, so he promises redemption will come. He promises a Savior. This Savior is Jesus Christ. But Adam and Eve, they have their first kid named Cain, and they, they think that Cain is the Savior, as most mothers think that their children are the Saviors. And instead of being the Savior, Cain commits the first murder instead. This was an episode of The Simpsons, and Adam was Homer. Adam would be going like, do right about now, because that's... I thought that was good. Apparently not. All right, so... <laughs> The firstborn son's name again is Cain. Cain tells his brother Abel, and God seeks him out just like God did for his father, Adam, after the fall. And Cain, I believe, after God seeks him out, is actually remorseful for his act, and God restores Cain to a new family. But I think even though that God is that good, Cain is still a knucklehead, as we all are, and his attitude probably reverts, and his sin gets passed on to his family. In Exodus 20, verse 5, Deuteronomy 5, 9, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, God says that the iniquity of the fathers will fall on the children. Now, I want to explain to you really quickly what I think that means. Over the next few weeks, you will see that God's word for relationship is covenant. Covenantally, when a father misleads his family, the effects of that misleading are often felt for generations. A father who abuses his wife or his children usually have kids who grow up hating that guy, but they end up being just like him. I know personally of a family who has this dad in the family. He's abusive to his wife and to the kids. They have five boys. At this point, four of those five boys are now abusers themselves, even though they hate their dad and what he has done. Children of addicts usually become addicts themselves in various ways. Because a father has been covenantally unfaithful to the trust God has given him, there are repercussions that are felt in his family for generations. It is not that the children are responsible for their father's sin. In Ezekiel 18.20 it says, the person who sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. In a legal sense, we are responsible for our own sin. This is why Jesus comes and he dies and he rises from the dead to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But on top of that, even deeper, Jesus wants to heal and restore our hearts from all the broken relationships and the chains that hold us to our past. Maybe you've had a terrible family and a terrible life and things have been done to you. Jesus longs to break those chains and to make us new. Now, sadly, in the case of Cain, generations after him, they are still struggling with the same sin that Cain did. And much of that is learning to be content in who God made him. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel. He wants to be his brother. He's not content who God made him to be. And so what he does is he places himself in the place of God, and he takes out his brother. So we're going to start in Genesis 4, verse 17, and this is after God restores him, and this is where we go. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, a lot of people stop right there, and they say, where'd Cain get a wife? Right? That's not the point of the story. If it was, you would get a whole little backstory about where she came from. It doesn't. That's not the point of the story. We focus on things all the time that are not the point of the narrative. If you just take it as it is, you got Adam and Eve, so it's got to either be a sister or a relative, so a little hillbilly redneck Mississippi right there in the Bible. Way to go. 
When he built the city, this is urban culture, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, the basic name of Enoch's name has to do with initiation and dedication and education. And what you see from a very early Jewish perspective is that it is God that blesses mankind with the ability to grow and to learn. There are people today who say, well, the Genesis account, well, that's taken from a bunch of pagan sources. That actually can't be further from the truth. If you look at all the pagan sources of this time, you run into all kinds of weird stuff. You've got Apkalo, who is the half-fish, half-god, who gives people iron and fishing tackle and social science and writing and art. You have a god named Thought, T-H-O-T, because apparently they can't spell either. All right. He's the god of scales and balances and justice. And Kea is the god of crafts and music. But scripture says it is God that allows man to grow and learn and create. And we do this because we have been made in the image of God. Scripture is not like anything else that is out there. Don't let anybody tell you different. Even a college professor who has been educated beyond his intelligence. To Enoch was born Arad. To Arad the father of Mahujael. Now I say it that way because you won't name your kid that. And it doesn't matter how I pronounce it. So I can say it whatever I want. All right. His name means serve God. Who jail? If you knew how it actually was pronounced, you'd laugh, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> was the father of Methushel. Now, Methushel means husband or man or warrior. Methushel fathered Lemek. And Lemek, this is the dude we're going to spend our time on this morning. It says, Lemek took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the other was Zilla. I always like to say that Lemek's got the ladies dialed in A to Z, but nobody thinks it's funny. So I just <laughs> let it go. It's funnier when I make fun of me not being funny, so yeah. So the question here, does God condone polygamy? No, he does not. It listed throughout the scriptures what people did, but God never condones polygamy. Personally, for me, I can't imagine more than one wife. I know my wife can't imagine more than one of me (laughs) running around. But, you know, it's really funny. Throughout history, you don't really see a whole lot of the reverse. It's usually like one guy and ten wives. It's never like, you know, one lady and and ten husbands because there ended up being one husband and nine buried bodies somewhere because guys don't share women at all. So God looks and he sees Adam. Adam's alone, this is bad, makes one woman. Once polygamy hits the scene, all kinds of bad stuff happen. Wars and nation against nation. If you go back to the beginning of the Jewish and Arab conflict, that's an issue of polygamy. In 1 Timothy 3.2, in the church, it says, Therefore an overseer, an elder, a pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. New Testament leadership is one wife. You get the picture. The picture of Jesus is a groom with one wife, his bride, the church. He is not married to many religions. Now, before you think that you and I are better than Lemek, let me just point out, as I usually try to to you, we are oftentimes worse than Lemek based on how our culture lives. Just like we are worse than Cain, we're worse than Lemek. In Lemek's day, guys wouldn't have sex with a woman unless they married them, so he marries two. Two. Now, today, people just have sex without marriage. Over 90% of people who go into marriages today, not virgins. I mean, how many people, even in marriage, commit adultery? How many people are looking at porn? How many people uh, make multiple uh, partners in their thought life? This is all worse than Lemek. Lemek just has two. I mean, we think Lemek, he's a disgusting guy. He married two ladies. In our day, we are so much worse. Women are used and abused by men all the time. Men will use a woman and not marry her. Some Today, some women will use men and not marry them. We are worse than Lemek, and he's not a godly guy. But our actions say that we aren't either. So Lemek has these two wives. This is the first episode of Big Love, right in the Bible. 
First one, her name is Ada. Ada means adorned one. Literally, her name translates as ornament. Like if you hang something at Christmas out in front of your house or on your Christmas tree, it's like, oh, look at the bright and shiny ornament. That's, that's Ada. Her name literally means pretty. Limic knows she is pretty. That's why he probably marries her. You got Zilla. Zilla means shadow, but not in the sense of like darkness. It's more along the lines of seductress, where she tempts from the shadows. She uses sexuality as a charm, as a defense, as a weapon. She's smart and she's sexy. Limic knows she's smart and sexy. Again, it's probably why he marries her. So you get to Limic, and Limic's name is not so wonderful as these other names. Limic's name means pauper, or one who is extremely poor. And so what you see is that Limic in his life has done all that he can to show everybody that he is no longer poor. But that stigma follows him his entire life because of his name. Parents, you must be careful what you name your kids. If your last name is Cain, don't name your kid Candy. They'll just be terrible for their entire lives. I saw this thing on Facebook where a girl said, if, if I get one million hits, I'll name my baby Megatron. Don't do that. That is awful. That stigma is going to follow your kid their entire life. What Lemick does, he does what anybody who is not content and trying to cover their own shame and not being who God wants them to be, they do. They, they don't trust God, and he tries to buy his way out of his discontent. For Lemick, that's two wives. And wives in this culture are expensive. Lemick can afford two, and not just any two. The most expensive, the most sexual, the most beautiful ones in his town. And this is just like us. Because we find ways that, we can try and find ways that so much of our discontent in our lives does not to touch us. We insulate ourselves from others. We put on an air that says we have it all together. Lemick spends loads of money trying to cover himself to make himself a self-made man. A man who doesn't need God's redemption because he's going to redeem himself in his own name. And the only thing that he needs to do this is just more and more and more. Lemmick lives like our American culture today. He has an itch for more. The one writer calls what how we live today the hedonic treadmill, that we're always trying to get more, that we may acquire what we want, but then we just want more, and we're never content with what we have. Every time Lemmick gets something more, he finds out that he is actually more empty inside. We suffer today from an apparently limitless capacity to use what used to be wants, and we turn them into needs and then turn them into rights that we're supposed to have these things. Greg Easterbrook, who is a social theorist, says that we live in a place that he calls abundance denial, where most of us have what we need to actually live our lives, but then we construct mental, elaborate rationalities, how we consider ourselves deprived of material things, and so we make ourselves more and more unhappy and more and more discontent. In the last 30 years, families who have over two cars has increased 500%. More than one TV in the home has increased 2,000%. More than one phone in the home has increased 5,000%. A Gallup poll that's about eight years old now talked to respondents, and they said on average they believe that 21% of Americans are rich, but only 0.5% of the respondents said that they thought they were rich. So everybody thinks everybody else has more than they do, and we all just need one thing to find contentment and to be fulfilled, and that is more. See, we are just like Lemmick. We don't ask if our, if our homes or our cars meet our needs. We ask if they're nicer than our neighbors' homes and cars. And if we think long enough and hard about things that we really want, our mind begins to convince us that we deserve these things. And somehow our rights have been violated if we don't have these things. This has led to a culture today in America that is so happy. Because we don't make enough money to get those things we want, so why don't we hope somebody hurts us? Not bad enough to maim us for life, but just hurt us bad enough that we can sue somebody to get some money to buy the things that we want. And we're a crazy culture. Do you know a few years ago the San Francisco Giants were sued for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only? Go figure, right? A psychology professor was recently sued for sexual harassment because he had mistletoe at a Christmas party. 
In the Bay Area, a psychic was awarded $986,000 when a doctor's CAT scan impaired her psychic abilities. Now, I think if she's really psychic, she wouldn't have gone to the doctor or got the CAT scan, right? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, study after study shows just an increasingly shocking low correlation between wealth and happiness, between more and content. But you will see study after study that shows giving and contentment goes hand in hand. One of the most fascinating studies I think that was done in regard to this was a study of lottery winners. Not like you when you win five bucks. You know, oh, it's, it's half a billion dollars. I want to go buy a lottery ticket. And like nobody wins anything that I know. You know if you do. Okay, anyway. <laughs> but it's like, it's not five. This is like people who win multi-million dollar lotteries. So they look at these people and they compare them to 22 normal people. And then they compare them to 29 victims of sudden paralysis. What they found is that over time, the lottery winners, they revert to their pre-level lottery depression or happiness, depending on how you look at that, and they ended up no happier than the 22 control subjects. They actually lost much of their ability to find joy and small pleasures in their life. If you look at the paralysis victims, on the other hand, you know, as, they're not nearly as unhappy as you think that they would be. I mean, once they got over the initial shock of the paralysis, they're actually more capable of experiencing joy from small pleasures than the lottery winners. And although it's hard to believe, they're actually more optimistic about their prospects for the future than lottery winners. And why is this? Because we all suffer from what is called a, a, a impaired judgment. And this all stems from the fall from sin infecting our world, that we place value in things that do not have a whole lot of value. In the 17th century, there's a Dutch frenzy called tulip mania, or tulpenwort, if you want to say it like that. This whole country hoarded tulips in the belief that the price would rise indefinitely. Now, at its height, whole family fortunes would be squandered on one single tulip bulb. A shoemaker in The Hague was able to grow one of the rarest of these bulbs, and it was a black tulip. Here's a picture of a black tulip. Now we got lots of them. Uh, nice, huh? Uh, here's another, there, right there, another picture. Now he's visited by some growers out of Harlem, and they bought his black tulip for 1,500 florins, which is a fortune back then. And as soon as they bought it, they dropped his flower on the ground, they crushed it underneath their feet because they also had a black tulip, and they were, wanted to be the only ones that had one. Now, when the price levels cracked, the entire economic life of Holland crumbled. Lawsuits were so numerous that the courts couldn't handle them. Boy, does that sound familiar? Yeah, a little bit. You know, and all of a sudden what begins to happen is people realize I'm not content with what I have. And then we have class warfare. Oh, we're the 99%. You're the 1%. And everybody's against everybody. We've got all these issues. It all comes down to being discontent. Limick thinks that money is going to buy him what he really wants. But it doesn't because it can't. And his life spirals downward. And I'll show you where his life goes. Verse 20. And Adab or Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of those who play the lyre and the harp. Now, some people believe that where we get the word jubilee from is from this guy's name, music. Now, some people, they get really weird when you bring up issues of music, because well, was it Christian music or is it non-Christian music? Well, was, was Jubal a Christian, and did he, did, did he make you know, instruments for worship? We don't know. Eventually, we use them in worship, and that's a good thing. People would say, oh, well, drums, those are tribal things. They're evil. Well, no, anything can be redeemed for God's use. I mean, I use toilet paper. I don't know if the guy who made it was a Christian or not, but I use it. Hopefully you do too. You know? I don't know if the chairs you're sitting in were made by a Christian, but we use them. Anything can be redeemed for God's use. Zillah also wore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Naama. Anybody like tools? 
right? My mom loves tools. Christmas, you don't get her free things, you buy her tools, and she's happy as a lark. Just, she loves tools. Now, you should like tools because it's in the book, it's in the Bible, so we are pro-tools. Society comes swiftly, tools get made, and there are a lot of interesting legends that surround this guy named Tubalcane and his bronze and ironworking skills. One of the legends holds that he has a unique ability that allows him to make weapons that are wondrous and far beyond those of his day. Legend also holds that he gives one of these weapons to Lemmick, which is not always a good idea because he's never content and he's very prideful and he always wants more. In Lemmick's day, there's no internet, so when you get bored, you can't go online and, and check out the new electronic gadgets or see who's coming in concert or download your favorite songs from iTunes. In order to check out community life and let people know how wonderful you think you are, you have to go down to the market and see everybody. Lemmick likes going to the market. But on some previous occasion, some young guy comes up to him at some point and made him feel belittled. It hurt his pride in some way, which you don't want to do to someone who is very prideful. So what does Lemmick do? Takes his weapon, puts it in whatever he's wearing that day, and heads out to the market itching for a fight. The guy that was giving Lemmick trouble has no idea in Lemmick's own mind how important Lemmick is to himself. How Lemmick has made all these strides to not be a pauper, to be a self-made man in his own eyes. How discontent Lemmick is actually with his own life. So he goes looking for a fight. And when Lemmick finds the young guy, a scuffle breaks out. Lemmick pulls out this weapon and kills the guy on the spot. He is so proud of himself and his weapon and what he has done. He goes home and he sings to his wives. Verse 23, Lemmick said to his wives, Adon Zilla, hear my voice. Literally, don't listen to God. You listen to me. You wives of Lemmick, in case you forgot who owns you, listen to what I say. These are arrogant words. This is Lemmick will now speak. Lemmick, I am Lemmick. I have killed a man for wounding me. He gave me a paper cut and I jammed his teeth to the back of his head. A young man for striking me. He's on the football team. He works out a lot. He may be young, but I'm tough and I'm Lemmick. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemmick's is seventy-sevenfold. What Lemmick just said is that he is tougher than God. Genesis 4.15, after Cain kills Abel and he's afraid someone's going to go after him and he repents, God says, you know what? No, if anybody hurts you, I will put vengeance on that person seven times over. Lemek is from Cain's line. He would have known this story. And so Lemek's words talk much about how far his pride and his self-sufficiency has influenced his character. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lemek 77 times. Lemmick is making himself out to be better than the God of his ancestors, stronger than the God of his family. Lemmick has become his own God because of his discontent. This is like many prideful people today in our world. But I will tell you the condition underneath all of Lemmick's discontent was a broken relationship with God himself. In Colossians 3, 5... Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know that coveting usually leads to idolatry. Never being content leads to that place because we think that we are God. We need to have everything that we want, everything that we need, and we turn ourselves into an idol. We turn ourselves into God. We convince ourselves that we are God. But you see, we are not just physical beings. We are also made to be spiritual beings as well. Our deepest hunger is spiritual. We hunger for meaning. We hunger for love. We hunger for hope. We hunger for redemption. All of these things that stuff can never bring. The condition underneath all of our wanting is God. For creation to be set right, beginning with the little piece of creation that is our own soul and our own body. I mean, thousands of years later, after this, we are still in the same place that Lemmick was. In the year 2000, the Wall Street Journal publishes an article about the construction of bloated homes that people buy but no one could ever use. One official from a building company said this, we sell what nobody needs. And see, that's the world in which we live. We sell what nobody needs. 
But the problem with the human heart is, is that we need what nobody sells. And this is Jesus. See, if we are not completely satisfied with all this world has to offer, if you have the discontent inside of you, well, you know what that tells you? It tells you you were made for more. More than just stuff can give you. We must understand that our dissatisfaction has within it this echo of God's dissatisfaction of what sin has done to the world and what humanity does for its push for more and more and more. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think when we understand the discontent correctly, this enables us to pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because that is where contentment comes from. See, materialism for most of us is God's main rival in our life. This is why the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be a content people. Open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians, chapter 4. Again, Genesis is easy to find. Philippians right in the middle of the New Testament. Dig for that one. Contentment does not come when we acquire enough. It it is a product of God working in and through us, of, of surrendering ourselves to him and even the way that we think. Contentment, Paul reminds us, is actually an acquired skill. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And I like that he says plenty and hunger, because usually in plenty is when we become more and more discontent. He says in abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philip Yancey wrote a book, a while ago, and in it, he details this guy who's trying to get away from his life of just acquisition of more and more things. So he goes to a monastery to spend a few days in a monastery. And a monk says, I hope you have a blessed stay while you're here. He shows him to his cell, and then he, and the monk says, and if you need anything, you let us know, and we'll teach you how to live without it. <laughs> See, Lemek has lived his life. Is that everything he wants, he must have. He is discontent with everything. It is even his right to have these things. And it so taints his life that he thinks... He knows better than God how a life is to be lived. Do you know in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus actually mocks Lemek? See, Peter comes to Jesus with the question. This is, how many times do I need to forgive somebody? Like, I've never hurt anybody, Jesus, and uh, so how many times do I need to forgive? Because I've never hurt anybody, and people hurt me all the time. And so he says, Jesus, he goes, as many times as seven times? Like, wow, Peter, you're just shooting for the moon at seven. Wow, that's... I think it's funny. And so Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. You see, this is the whole idea of being content in who God made us. See, people wonder, like Peter, if we live content in just who God is and we actually forgive the way God calls us to forgive, are people going to take advantage of us? Are they going to take advantage of our generosity, of our forgiveness? See, part of our problem is that we know we are to be like God. Ephesians 5.1 says this, be imitators of God. But we don't like this because we don't really trust God to take care of it or our lives. And yet Paul reminds us to be content. We must trust him in everything that he has promised. And I, I think this, you know, what if instead of living our lives as if we are the center, we lived as if Jesus was the center? And what if we placed in Jesus the hope of all of our truest and deepest longings? Because the scriptures say that you and I are people who actually get to see God face to face as he truly is. That we can understand his grace and his truth and his beauty and his righteousness and his love. And that if we can truly live like that, I think we will actually learn to be content. And I think we will say, that's enough. I actually have enough because we are content in him. And that is the point of the scriptures. 
But I also think the really cool thing on the flip side of that is that once we get that and we become content in who he is, I think God's the one that says more, more, more of him and who he is. And for all eternity, I don't think we will ever plumb the depths of who he is. The point is, is that we are not God. We should stop trying to be. Because when we stop trying to be, only then do we find true contentment for our souls. And our pride starts to vanish. And we will not need to live like Lemek. And we can actually live like Jesus calls us to live. A people fully content in who he is and what he has done. And lives fully showing how he loves by how we love. Because we are content to live the way he calls us to. This is one of the reasons every week we bring you guys to communion. Because this communion is a place of humbleness. We remember that our great God died and rose for his people. When we break that cracker like his body was broken for us, and we dip it in the wine of the grape juice, remind us of his blood that was shed for you and me. So that we can be this people who no longer have to run around feeling discontent. But we can have our contentment because it is found in the only one who brings contentment. And that is Jesus Christ. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. We invite you to pray. There'll be some elders and some deacons in the back. And if you have lived your life in such a way that you have never found this whole source of contentment, we invite you to go and pray with them. Because the point of our lives is not ourselves to consume more and more and more. The point of our lives is to lift up Jesus and who he is and what he has done and live the lives that he calls us to, lives of full contentment in him. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then simply part of that worship. So we give because we are content to trust him to bring things into our lives. And there's some food and stuff in the back. There was, I know there's still donut holes or donut holes before first service. I actually grabbed one because I don't want to eat too many donuts. Then I'll get like a sugar rush and I'll like crash in the middle of the sermon. I'll be like, where was I? I don't know. Yeah. And so, but there was two. They were stuck together. I was trying to get it and I wouldn't let go, so I had to eat two. Apparently it was God's will. <laughs> so... So there's food in the back, grab some food, get to know some other people. Because again, I, I believe that God created and is also a discontent for being isolated and alone. And that to live the life he truly calls us to, we do it in community with other people. And so meet some other people, come to baptisms today. Don't throw the ball for my dog, don't feed her, but hang out and feed each other and you know, talk to each other and, and create some real relationships. Because this is also the point of God redeeming and saving his people. God is good. He has given all of us all that we need for life and godliness. We need to simply trust him for that. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that we as your people will be those who understand when we feel discontent in our hearts. And we will look for the source of that and where it is. And Father, if it's because we are not trusting you with our lives, you would remind us of your great grace and your great love. And that we would in turn begin to live lives of content in you and what you have provided. Not that we don't work hard, not that we don't strive for for better and better things, but that we are content in what you have made us to be. Father, when we look around and we have discontent with things in our world, I ask that you would give us the conviction to go and do something about it, to not just let it keep going, but but to stand up for what's right and bring hope and grace and love into situations that are around us so that your great fame is spread more and more by your people and how we live, and that maybe people would look and see the contentment with which we find in you. Not that everything in our lives goes smoothly, but that when everything falls to pieces, we still have hope and faith in you because you are the God who has saved us. Father, your love is marvelous and wonderful, 
And I ask that we would be this people who live knowing that we have more than enough for all of our needs in you. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.